After an extended summer break, and we are ready to field each other's musical selections once more. My name is Dan Cooper, and I'm joined as ever by my excellent co-host Sam Whaley. How are you, dude? And how was your summer break? Aloha! Yeah, it's been all good. We've been attempted to go camping, but I don't know whether you heard about all the floods up in North Yorkshire. And then, obviously, the night before <laughs> I had camping booked. It was on the news about all the floods and mass flooding and you can't get anywhere, you can't do this, you can't do that. So it was cancelled, so I've not had a camping trip this year. Dude, that's gutting. I miss camping. I haven't been for a long time and it's something I really want to get back to doing because I loved it when I was growing up and stuff and we just don't get a chance. So yeah, yeah, man. Hopefully you'll get out there sometime and, and get some camping done. What are you up to this weekend, my friend? Well, I'm up to this weekend. Well, tomorrow um, I am I'm attending my first ever ice hockey game. Um, I, you know, I'm going with yourself, and that should be a blast, I think. Um, never really been a sport in person, but this will be my kind of <laughs> first entry into that kind of thing. So we'll see how it goes, man. Really looking forward to it. Up the Steelers. Up the Steelers, indeed. Just before we start, I've actually got a bit of an announcement to make for a friend of mine. Sure. Uh, a while back, I used to be in a band called the Coppercetics, and we had a keyboard player slash trumpetist named Susie. Now, we all stepped away from music, which is, was unfortunate. Uh, we all went our separate ways. And Susie went down the route of becoming a filmmaker, and she's actually made a music documentary. Now, the documentary is called So Which Band Is Your Boyfriend In? It's got lots of interviews with women or gender-fluid individuals, including... Marcia from The Skints, uh, Layla from Sonic Boom 6, Lande from The Muncie Girls, The Tuts, Colour Me Wednesday, and Petrol Girls. There's musicians, photographers, sound engineers, tour managers, all sorts of stuff, venue owners, and all their experiences, positive and negative, in the UK music scene. Now, this film's already been shown at the Dock and Roll Film Festival in the UK. It's been shown at Girl House Cinema in Boston. And there's been several screenings across the UK, Europe, and Australia. Today, it's actually been released for all of us to watch. And I'm sure, I hope I get this right, it's on Amazon Prime. Um, Fantastic. So anyone who's got Amazon Prime, or if you know anyone who's got Amazon Prime, get it watched. Uh, I've not actually watched it myself yet, but I'm intending to do that this evening. Um, And if you want to find out any more information the website is musicdocumentary.co.uk and the social media is at so which band on everything fantastic i mean that that is a really cool thing to hear because i've got to say a lot of my favorite music this year in particular has been by female um female artists so i i'm just i'm always up for hearing about what's kind of going on in that area of music because obviously the music business has been quite male dominated for for quite some time so it's fantastic to see someone shining a spotlight on that kind of thing and yeah i've got amazon prime so i'll definitely be giving that a watch fantastic for any listeners uh, that haven't um, haven't tuned into the show before, the rules of Mystery Record Club are as follows. At the end of each show, Sam picks a mystery record for me. 
I pick one for him, and then the next week we discuss those records. If you want to keep up to date with anything um, to do with the show, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram simply by searching Mystery Record Club Podcast. We've also got a brand new email newsletter available. If you want to know about anything that we've talked about, any of the bands, you know, any of the background um, and any of the research we've done, we'll put that in the newsletter. So, yeah, we'll, we'll put a link up to that on our Twitter after the show. So, on the last episode, we picked some records for each other to listen to over the summer break. And for me, you picked the incredible Separation Sunday by The Hold Steady. Certainly did. And for myself, you picked Avenged Sevenfold's Nightmare, which we're going to talk about right now. So, Nightmare is the fifth album by Orange County metal band Avenged Sevenfold, and it was released in 2010. It was produced by Mike, and I, I hope I get this name right, Mike... Elizondo at Pass and Phantom Studios in Orlando, Florida, and it was their third release for major label Warner Records. Now, I'd like to start this chat off by saying I have been and I still am a big fan of Avengers Sevenfold. Their early albums, such as Waking the Fallen and City of Evil, they played a big part in my uh, kind of late teens. I found the combination of like hardcore and punk melodies and old school metal really refreshing because there was nothing really like it at the time. I will say, the record that we're going to talk about today, Nightmare, having listened to it, it's an absolutely fantastic record. It's not my favourite Avenged record by, by any stretch, but after reading up, it's far and away the one with the best and most interesting story. And having actually read into this, it, it's a fascinating record, really. So... As a band, Avenged Sevenfold definitely have some signature elements. You've got that unique guitar playing of Sinister Gates, you've got the kind of vocal snarl of M Shadows, and last but not least, you've got this innovative drum style of uh, Jimmy Sullivan, otherwise known as The Rev. It's something I've always noticed about the band, right from the first listen, and the first time I ever heard them was on a track called Eternal Rest, which uh, I think that was back in about 2004, and it was pretty much on every free CD with, like, I don't know, metal magazines like Kerrang! and Metal Hammer. So he played in a metal band, but he had this hyperactive style, and it was kind of more of a punk style, in my opinion, which basically gave him this instantly recognisable style of drumming. Unfortunately, in December 2009, three days after Christmas and well into the writing process of a new record, the Rev died from a drug overdose, leaving his bandmates grief-stricken and feeling unable to continue. Now, when I initially heard this, I figured to myself that the band was, was pretty much over because they seemed like such a brotherhood. You know, when you read interviews with them, they seemed so solid that it felt like without this key element, you know, a key member and, like, solid friend within the band, that it'd be really, really hard for them to continue. I just figured they were done. But, in the words of frontman M Shadows, they really needed to finish the record for Jimmy. And with the support of family and friends, that's just what they did. So they eventually settled on the title Nightmare, which I think is pretty appropriate considering what the band had been through. When I first got into Avenged Sevenfold, I remember thinking, Sam likes AFI, Sam likes Iron Maid. I bet he dig these guys. And I don't think we ever really spoke about it. So I want to ask you, what was it that piqued your interest um, in Avenged Sevenfold in the first place? First of all, I'd just like to say what an incredible song Eternal Rest is, you mentioned earlier on. Oh, yes. That's one of my favourites. That is excellent stuff. And I also like your comparison to AFI and Iron Maiden because I think you've got it spot on with that. The first time I heard Avenged Sevenfold was at my friend Dom's house and he was listening to the album Sounding the Seventh Trumpet. Now, the funny thing about this is he found it all so very hilarious and he found it cheesy and funny. And the reason he showed it to me was for the song uh, Warmness on the Soul. 
Oh, yeah, um, the piano ballad, yeah, right? Yeah, which is an incredibly cheesy song. But from that moment, it sort of hooked me. And, you know, I bought the album and then went on to buy Waking the Fallen as well, What, which, of course, is one of their best albums. Uh, yeah, so Waking the Fallen absolutely blew Sound of the Sound of the Trumpet out of the water, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. um, I think it's a fantastic mix of, like you say, punk, uh, there's metal, rock, almost like an operatic sense to it all. Um, and I think Jimmy the Rev Sullivan has to be, you know, the, the most, or was the most talented member of the band, you know, along with Sinister Gates. And I think it's those two that sort of draw you into it all because it's such an impressive uh, thing to listen to these guys doing what they do together. I think so. And uh, I mean, I remember first kind of seeing them in, it was one of the metal magazines, like kind of Metal Hammer or Big or Rock Sound or something like that. And I remember it was a double page spread and it had a, you know, the, the first kind of pictures of them where they're wearing all the eyeliner and yeah. they're all wearing black skinny jeans and kind of metal, metal band um, kind of cut off t-shirts. And I thought these guys look pretty crazy, you know, um, but it was kind of more the description of them. Like I said to you, the whole, the, the combination of AFI, you know, that punk sound, really anthemic chant along uh, choruses and just awesome twin guitar sounds. Mm. There was so much to love. And as well as the fact that they mixed it with punk rock, which at the time I was hugely into. So just, just it, you know, it sparked my curiosity. It's the, and- um, it's the Danny Elfman sound, isn't it? That's what I was looking for when I was ta- saying operatic. It's the, like, yeah. the Danny Elfman sound. I know what you mean, and, and and it's strange, you know, trying to describe them because they have elements of bands like The Offspring, AFI. You can even hear like band like the guitar style of like bands like Cradle of Filth, which is yeah. really weird um, to say about a band from Orange County. <laughs> but um, yeah. you can hear it all. They took, I mean, Pantera. We'll talk about that later. Are obviously a, a dominant influence on this band, but you know for such young kids to write this kind of music that kind of album at the time it was it was really something let's talk about what the band described both before and after the rev's death as an album where according to frontman m shadows we wanted to bring it back to a dark place we wanted to take them on a dark journey because at the time you could sense frustration on all corners of the earth financial institutions people losing all their money other people are rich for no reason just real frustration in the world uh, now, it seems to be that the band were already headed towards making a, an explosive, almost like politically minded album at the very start of the whole process. I personally feel like Avenged Sevenfold have always embraced quite a dark sound, as we, we, we just discussed, you know, with you saying like Danny Elfman. So what differences do you think Nightmare brings to the table compared to the rest of the, the back catalogue of Avenged Sevenfold? I think by this point in the band's career, they had hit their peak when it comes to like this style, this dark style that they had. Um, yep. And I know you mentioned about the, the the original idea of this being political. I, I just I do not think that would have worked for this band. I think it's more about you know it, it is about darkness and it is about fantasy, and this is where this band belong. Um, you know, and I think they'd honed this style by this point as well. And I think this this yeah. album shows more maturity than um, the others. So, you know, you can go back to probably City of Evil. I think anything before that was a different again, you know, a different style again. Waking yeah. the Fallen is different to City of Evil. Um, it was a lot more youthful, wasn't yeah, it? Those two were different from anything else. But then, you know, City of Evil, self-titled, and then Nightmare uh, all stick to sort of this kind of style. Sticking to Nightmare, I don't think there's anything 
that particularly helps this one stand out other than perhaps the you know the, the dark content and i think the maturity i feel like as an album it almost allows them to take things that they tried in the past and it just it allowed them to pick all of those influences and choose the strongest ones and then kind of just stick it all on one record the title track nightmare and as i mentioned this kicks off the record with a blending of the band's past and presence you've got crashing drums like symphonic sounding guitars to start off and then it kicks into this massive pantera style groove now i think i mentioned the whole pantera thing before and there's always been that comparison made whether it be in reviews or from fans and i think it's something to do with that guitar tone that sinister gates used he kind of scoops the middle out of uh, out of the guitar tone so you've got a lot of treble and bass but that you're taking that middle out and it gives it that really crunchy dime bag daryl kind of sound but i think that i don't think that they come close to being copycats really i think that they they put it in the right places so that you notice it and you think that's a great pantera style riff but they're never really ripping them off and i don't feel like they ever really rip any bands off i feel like they they take and they borrow little things but they make it their own like for example i feel like m shadows does a lot of kind of axel rose yeah kind definitely. of vocal yeah. styles it kind of like the more it's hard to describe what i mean but he does like kind of a moaning vocal that's very Axl Rose. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it, they, they definitely borrow. You know I think, they never... I think you've, uh, you've discovered the same thing as what I discovered about this band. And it's similar with other bands like Iron Maiden, for example. I'm always trying to find new music. And there was a, a while back when, you know, the same for Avenged Sevenfold and, and Iron Maiden. I was looking for, you know, in Google, give me a new band like Iron Maiden. And... There's nothing. There's absolutely nothing. And you, you can say the same for Avenged Sevenfold. Get, you know, find me a band that's similar to Avenged Sevenfold and you'll find nothing because there just there isn't anything else out there like it. The strange thing is when you when you uh, look look for music that is like the stuff that you really love, whether or not you find something that is like that, it'll generally always be a weaker product. So it's yeah. it's kind of it's it's frustrating, isn't it? Like you want to find a band that's like I Am Maiden, but not I Am Maiden. Yeah. Well, you're gonna you know it's it's one of those things where you can be like it's kind of a losing battle, isn't it? Because Maiden are the tippy top. And when it comes to this combination of, of great rock music, I think Avenged Sevenfold have really hit a peak with it too. Speaking of kind of borrowing sounds, I don't know if you've ever heard the song Skin Oh My Teeth by Megadeth. It's, it's on their album Countdown to Extinction. And it's got this drum intro. 
that is exactly, and I'm, I'm speaking exactly the same as the drum intro to Welcome to the Family. Now, I'm not sure if it's like a nod or like a kind of, you know, an homage to, to their heroes, but we'll play a little bit of it now and people can decide. It's the same thing. It's, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. So, regarding this, I feel like Avenged Sevenfold have always been a band that have worn their influences on their sleeve. So much so that at times you think that they've really managed to perfect that, that art of an imitation. Like, like, like I said, they're not really being copycats, but they've, they've perfected something that they've grown up listening to. So, in terms of like, them wearing their influences on their sleeve, would you agree with that? Yes, both literally and figuratively, I think. <laughs> in the literal sense, obviously, the tattoos. Um, but figuratively, yeah, indeed, I think you can hear so much. You, you, you can hear Metallica, you can hear Guns N' Roses, um, you can hear Dream Theater. Um, you know, even sometimes you can hear stuff like Bad Religion. I know it sounds such a strange thing to say, but I think sometimes uh, M. Shadow's vocal is, is really sort of on that level. And, you know, I've got yeah. stuff like Motley Crue as well. Yeah, yeah. And I think that comes into the kind of play on some of their later records, that kind of hair metal yeah. style. Because it's hard to avoid that kind of a guitar riff if you're going to play in a band like this, I think. So, so yeah, I totally get the Motley Crue thing. On this one, I think the band mentioned that although it's not a concept album, it is loosely a record based around the Rev. So it's based around his life mm. and, and his passing. Uh, Zachy Vengeance, who I think... The rhythm guitarist? Yeah. He addressed the fact that in terms of making a concept album, they were a massive fan of kind of like stuff like The Wall by Pink Floyd and in particular, Queensryche's Operation Mindcrime. Now, I'm a massive fan of that record. It's one of the coolest albums of the 80s as far as I'm concerned. It's a proper classic of the rock and metal genre. But you can really hear the way that they've borrowed from that because that that record's initially a record about kind of drug addiction and it follows a story all the way through. And I feel like this record kind of flows in the same yeah. way. So it was really same interesting record. for me to uh, to hear that and kind of be like, oh yeah, I can see where they borrowed from that. Um, now I want to ask, are you a fan of concept albums? And if you are, do you have any favorites? I love concept albums. And I thought you would, whether you've been a prog yeah, fan. I've got plenty, plenty, plenty of favorites. You know, I think me and you were talking about Guilty Pleasures a few weeks back. So I'm going to tell you one of my guilty pleasure concept albums. Go um, for it. And it's Chronicles of Life and Death by Good Charlotte. That was oh, a random one, yeah. but yeah. Uh, it's crazy, isn't it? Because that was such a big hit, you, and you wouldn't really think that it was a concept album, but yeah. It, it's it's a kind of Marmite thing, the concept album, because not a lot of people want to commit to that kind of idea that it might be something they've got to focus on so heavily to get into it. I really like an album with a story. I was really into Coheed and Cambria when they came mm. out because... Obviously, that was like a whole comic book saga, and and they were really kind of harking back to bands like Rush and Dream Theater, so that was cool. But yeah, I'm definitely a fan of the the old concept album. In comparison to their previous self-titled album, which debuted on the American Billboard charts at number four, this record took things one step further, giving the band its first Billboard number one. So I want to ask you, what do you think the contributing factors are with the band over the course of these past two albums so that's the self-titled and this one that helped them crack the billboard charts i think it's the band's you know obvious hard work and dedication i think they've got dedication yep. to the fans they've got dedication to the music 
you know, this is their life. I think it's one of these bands that, you know, they're, they're constantly touring all the time, whether they've got a new album or not. You know, they'll have a, uh, they'll bring a new album out and they'll tour that for two or three years. And, you know, that surely that's got a big part to play. And also, I think they're very listener friendly in the, you know, the later stuff. Although I would consider them a heavy metal band, I think they sort of fit into so many categories that it leaves them open to reach a much wider audience. Ah, that's an utterly fantastic answer, man. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, I feel like it's a couple of reasons, you know. One was, as you mentioned, they'd been building a loyal fan base. This wasn't their first album. It wasn't their first couple of albums. They'd definitely been around a while. And, you know, they started off as a cult band, really. You know, you got to City of Evil and you started getting more coverage, more music videos played, and, and the band kind of took off. They were supporting kind of huge acts on big arena tours, and then they were playing those same kind of arenas themselves later on. So so I think that's pretty cool that they managed to build that following and kind of get their sound down to a level where they weren't compromising, but, you know, like a, a mass audience could appreciate it. album track so far away in terms of this song i feel like it's a band unafraid to embrace the whole power ballad thing really i mean we'd seen them embrace ballads right from waking the fallen but you got seize the day on city of evil which was a big hit and i feel like this works in the same vein really it's it's a big big number with a massive chorus and it's got one of those guitar solos where you can imagine sinister gates out in the desert with this hair blowing and stuff you know just super shreddy just like November Rain. Yeah, I was going to say, like, and slash on November Rain, yeah. They really act as a, a throwback when it comes to these kind of things and these kind of elements that they want to remind people were so great. I mean, who who can forget that November Rain video, really, where Slash is playing that solo, and, and this really echoes that kind of, you know, sound. Hell yeah. Um, I think as varied as the album is, there's still this focus on, on fantastic windmilling, headbanging metal. And one of my favourite moments um, is the proper, proper throwback, like thrash of God Hates Us. It kind of lulls you into a false sense of security with like these delicate clean guitars before like hitting you up with like Metallica style chugging and these massive grooves. I mean, overall, this has got some of the best drumming on the record as well. And speaking of drumming on this record, it's really sad that the Rev wasn't actually a part of it due to his passing, but in his stead, one of the true legends of rock and metal filled in for him. So we got Dream Theater's very own Mike Portnoy filling the, the drumming role here. Now, Sam, I want to ask you, when you listen to this record, what do you think Mike Portnoy brings to things and how do you think his style differs from the Rev? Mike Portnoy is one of the greatest rock drummers of all time. He certainly brings an experience to the album. But I also think he does he does a damn fine job of like filling the Rev's boots. He brings the essence of the Rev, you know, into the music through his playing, not 
copycatting, um, but seems to like have adapted his style to match the band's style. So, you know, he's not doing Dream Theater Mike Portnoy, he's doing Avenged Sevenfold Mike Portnoy. He matches the band so well, I think it's a damn shame for the band that he could only do this one album with them. You know, I don't think the drummers that came after are anywhere near lived up to his stature or the revs either so yeah i think he was a, he was just an absolute perfect fit for this album i mean i totally agree and i think dream theater and avenge sevenfold they're very different beasts really they've got a lot of similarities but they're, they're very different in the way that they operate but mike portnoy still had that kind of dive you know diverse experience that you mentioned of playing really technical and diverse styles and i think he more than fills in for the rev here without sounding like just some dude filling in mm, for another dude. Yeah. So you, you really get that sense that he's trying his best to pay homage to to kind of the fallen brother uh, of Avenged yeah, Sevenfold. Yeah, he certainly listened to a lot of the previous stuff to get to this point. I yeah. Think, certainly. I think my favourite thing about this record is that, it, you know, it starts out as a, as a proper powerful Avenged Sevenfold record like you would kind of expect. you got the title track, and it works its way through a number of styles. But you get these... Um, these three songs that kind of conclude the record. And to me, the actors like this unintentional, almost suite of like slower contemplative songs. It starts out with a track called tonight, the world dies, which to me listening to this was like one part Alice in Chains, one part country and like almost like some mournful prayer. It was just, it really kind of, I don't know. got to me that one. It then moves on to a really special piece of music titled fiction which was completed by the Rev three days before his death. Um, so let's take a listen to that one. It's a really melancholy piece of music which really stands on its own stylistically from the rest of the album. Um, it features not only M. Shadow's vocals, but it also features the vocals of the Rev, which were taken, I believe, from the demo recording of the song. So that's super cool that they, they decided to make that move, really. Um, I think it's a massive departure for the band in terms of style. What do you make of the song Fiction? I think it's, it's one of my favourite Avenged Sevenfold songs. It's... It's got emotion, it's got, uh, you know, a unique style. It's got some, that's something that makes, you know, it's an extremely impressive song. And the Rev's vocals, um, you know, he's done it on all the previous albums when he does that sort of, you know, uh, I suppose you'd say scream, wouldn't you? When he does that sort of screaming vocal, it, it makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. He's got a very unique uh, vocal style. And it's, it's strange because you listen to the, the lyrics of the song and they just fit. And it's it's one of those really weird things. It's like a Bohemian Rhapsody effect where it's like they've predicted the future with the lyrics of this song as to what what's going to happen. 
It's really powerful in that way, isn't yeah. it? It's a track where you can almost feel the presence of the writer. So you, you, I was listening to this, and believe it or not, it was the first time I'd heard it. I think I may have heard it a long time ago because um, a bassist in one of the bands I played with loved Avenged, but it will have just been in the background. But just kind of putting my headphones on, listening to this song, it felt so separate to the rest of the album, but yet so kind of included. It, it's so, so hard to kind of put your finger on that. Um, but obviously it's got that haunting piano line, which is super memorable. It's got the Revs vocals, which are so hard to kind of get out of your head once you've heard them. Um, as well as the lyrics, which I think the band were even quoted as saying he wrote all these lyrics about finding finding the way when he's not there anymore. Mm. And it was as although he knew that he was going to kind of die or that he wasn't going to be with them much longer. So it's really sad that the band kind of had to think that after the Rev passed away. But this song, it's just so affecting, really. And it reminds me, I don't know if you've heard his side project, Pinkly Smooth, I think it's called. No. Yeah, definitely a band worth checking out if you like this track, because there's a lot of that kind of style um, on his side project. Uh, I don't know if that's with another member of the band. I'm not sure. Apologies for not reading up on that. But um, again, I, I have a couple of friends that really, really like that band. And um, they're kind of more on the Faith No More side of things, which, again, I think you can hear on that track, like the kind of haunting style. Mm. So the third and last in this so-called trio or suite that I've made up in my head um, is a song called Save Me. And I think... Well, as with all Avengers Sevenfold records, it's the true epic. It's it's ten minutes plus. It ties up all the dramatic tension that's created throughout the album. It's got these ghostly vocals from M Shadows and some of the best shredworthy solos, kind of this side of Halloween, really. Um, the song kind of breaks down towards the end with with M Shadows declaring, "If you hear me, let me know." And although I couldn't find much context to this, I figure it's either like you know, them assuming it's a call from the grave to the rest of the Rev's bandmates, or it's M Shadows reaching out to his fallen brother. I mean, I couldn't decide, but with a lyric like, if you hear me, let me know, it's it's kind of, you wonder why, why they wrote mm. that. Um, but yeah, either way, really heartfelt, full of emotion, and it really helps close out a fantastic record, which is more of a roller coaster than any of their records before it, really. Do you have a favourite moment from this record, dude? You know me, and you know how I like to become emotionally attached with with music and uh, sure. certain songs and certain things. And, you know, especially the song Fiction, you know, uh, we've spoke everything about it. Um, but just when I was just sitting here thinking about it then, um, I'm just sat here getting goosebumps, goosebumps, goosebumps. And you were talking about the, the final song where he, uh, you know, he, he says, uh, if you hear me, let let me know. Um, it's definitely that. I think you, the second thing you said, where he's he's reaching out for his fallen brother. Yeah, it, it really does, and that that that's giving me goosebumps now. It's one of those things where you 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 feel their emotion, yeah. you feel how they must be feeling, and it's not some cheesy thing. It's like a, they lost somebody, and they they're dedicating this moment in this album to him and to kind of saying, you know, we've done this for you. Um, we've completed your work uh, and, and kind of, you know, thank you yeah. for, for allowing us to do this. It's just, it's amazing. Have you seen the uh, the thing on the album cover? No, no. On the gravestone, it says uh, forever, but the letters R-E-V uh, bigger. Oh, right, okay. quite a cool little tribute there as well. It really is, without kind of like just sticking it yeah. right there up front. Yeah, it's very classy, very cool, man. Um 
as well as fiction, which obviously is like the centerpiece of this record. You've got a lot of fantastic songs. As an album, I find it really hard to fault such a well laid out, you know, thought provoking, mournful piece of work. I mean, you can listen to it as, as this fantastic piece of rock music, but if you know the story behind it, I feel like the record takes on this whole other life and you can hear the, the Rev's style and you can hear like the themes that he wanted to incorporate into the whole thing. So yeah, man, th- this was a real eye opener for me because I've always liked Avenged Sevenfold. But if you're like me and you're more of a casual fan, sometimes you won't dip into certain releases. And this was one of the ones I hadn't checked out. And I'm damn glad that you uh, you gave it to me because it really is that ultimate distillation of all the, the things the band had done up until that point. And, and I think it's probably, like I said, it's not my favourite, but it feels like an essential metal album when it comes to, you know, anybody that likes rock, anybody that likes hard rock or heavy metal, you need to check this record out because it's got everything. So thanks, man. She says always remember, never to trust me. Uh, She said that the first night that she met me. Uh, She said there's gonna come a time when I'm gonna have to go with whoever's gonna get me the highest. So, the album you chose for me was Separation Sunday by The Hold Steady, um, which, believe it or not, is a concept album. We've done that thing again, man, where we've both picked something completely different, but it's got a link. Um, it's strange, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Separation Sunday is the second studio album by American indie rock band The Hold Steady. Uh, now, it came out on May the 3rd, 2005. It was on French Kiss Records. At first listen, I didn't realise as much about this album as what I'm going to talk to you about. I think anybody that listens to this record the first time feels exactly (laughs) the same as you. I did. Everyone else I've suggested it to did. So, yeah, man. So, Separation Sunday follows uh, interconnected stories of fictional characters created by Craig Finn, who is the uh, lead vocalist of The Hold Steady. So you've... Timmy Mallet look Timmy Mallet look-alike. So you've got Craig, who's the narrator. You've got Holly. Um, and you've got Chalamet. And you've got Gideon. Oh, yeah. Uh, now, musically, Separation Sunday has elements of classic rock. There's guitar solos, uh, sort of riff-based structures. And you've got the fantastic piano and organ playing of Franz Nikolai. Structurally, the songs don't sort of go down a standard route of first chorus, first chorus, first chorus. Uh, it's a little bit different. Um, sometimes you won't have a chorus at all. Sometimes you'll have a chorus, a chorus, a chorus, a chorus. It's it's not your average album at all. Um but yeah, but yeah, it's not like once you kind of get to know it, it's not an album that's kind of like become. It's not like the Dillinger Escape no, no, Plan no, no, or something, no, no. is it? You know no, what I mean? Yeah, but no. it's still quite untraditional. Yeah, you can, you know, after a few listens, you can go listen to it and you know what's coming. But it's not a typical album structure. Um, Blender described the whole steady as sounding like the best bar band in the world. Um, <laughs> so. It's lyrically dense. So many lyrics. And I think you've done this one on purpose for me so I can open up my, uh, you know, 
lyrical intelligence. So that's what I'm going to. You know, try I really didn't. That's the thing. <laughs> that's one of the things that I kind of when you when you just said that just now, I was thinking to myself, oh, maybe that's what he thinks. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I did it because. I don't know. I just, I, I really love this record, but on, on kind of like second thoughts, yeah, it is one of those records where you need a footnote for every lyric, to listen, pretty You much. only need to listen to it about 27 times to understand it all, that's all. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we start off with a song called Hornets, Hornets. Um, and we have some extreme panning. If you listen to this in your headphones, it goes from one ear to the other. Um, and oh, yeah. it starts off with the distinctive sing-speak of Craig Finn. Uh, it's all done in a cappella, and then you kick into a pretty sweet guitar riff. Um, yep. The first thing that hits me about this record is that it reminded me of Dig Lazarus Dig by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Now, I realise that album came out after this one, uh, but the resemblance is uncanny, and I love it. I think this track is, uh, you know, it's just one of those things that sort of introduces you to the whole steady, and if you've never heard them before, listen to Hornets, Hornets, and you'll get it all in one. Um, this track is also an introduction to the main character, Holly, and the theme shall continue throughout. Do you hear the resemblance between this album and Dig Lazarus Dig? You know, I think we spoke about this quite a while ago when I first gave you this record, and um, I hadn't heard Dig Lazarus Dig for a long time. I mean, I, I'm a, a Nick Cave fan, but a casual one, so I've scanned through everything. And I've picked the parts I like, and and that was something that I liked quite a while ago. So going back to this after you said it, I was really glad that you had a point of reference because this kind of music, you know, it's quite an abrasive style to get into if you don't have something to compare it to. So I think the kind of conversational, almost spoken word nature of both Dig Lazarus Dig and loads of the Hold Steady and Craig Finn stuff... It's got a lot of common ground when it comes to that. You know, they're telling a story, they're trying to relay it in this um, almost two guys at a bar telling each other what happened today or what happened the other day, that kind of thing. And um, obviously, it, it's quite a niche kind of music. It doesn't really cater to a pop-friendly audience. It works more for people who like records that kind of, they want to listen to a few times, as you mentioned, you know, 27 times. But yeah, I think the similarity on that one is, is kind of, really interesting because I couldn't ever think of any bands that sounded like the whole steady. But when you pointed this out to me, I was like, Oh yeah. yeah. And it's Nick cave as well. That's cool yeah. as hell. It's not like Nick cave always sounds like the whole steady. It's just that particular no. album. No, no. And, and, and the more you listen to that actual album, dig Lazarus dig, the more you realize quite a lot of people did that style back in the day, like Tom Waits, uh, Leonard Cohen, they did a lot of people did mm. that kind of speak sing style. It's just Craig Finn's is is more in that punk rock vein, isn't it? On this yeah, record, yeah, yeah. so you can see where these these things all match up. But when you realise it, you're like, oh, okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, next on the album, you've got a song called "Cattle and the Creeping Things," and this is such a great song. I think this is possibly my favorite on one of my favorites on the album anyway we get to find out a little bit more about holly who is referred to as a hood rat uh, who is someone who perhaps performs sexual things in return for drugs or sometimes just a roof over their heads i had to look this one up because like i'm it. not cool and down with the kids i had to look this up so we get to see a dark side to this character i, I love everything about this song uh, it's got more of a sinister undertone than hornets hornets and anything else really on the whole record this has got more of a, like a minor key to it um you get you also get like the first indication that our main character is in fact highly religious with the mention of exodus 
the first time I heard this song through, I thought they said accident. But when I've read through the lyrics, it is Exodus. Uh, it's just the, the strange accent of Craig uh, Craig Finn. Um, but while I sit there and listen, I can't help but feel that Craig Finn is sat in a bar next to me, ever so slightly tipsy, uh, telling me this story of a girl he once knew. It yep. does sort of feel like a personal thing. And when you've got the headphones on especially, I mean, I've been listening to this a lot at work uh, while I've been working, but you, it's one of those things where you sort of, you, you know, I'm at work, say, for example, I'm sweeping up and I'm listening away to this. And then you'll think to yourself, how the hell did I get here? Because you sort of get so taken away by the, you know, the lyrical content that you you forget where you are for a couple of minutes. Um, Yep. So, yeah, let's have a little listen to that. So what are your thoughts on Craig Finn's unique vocal style? Before I get to that, um, I kind of think that this has a Queens of the Stone Age type vibe. Yeah. It reminds me of No One Knows. Um, and I thought, I, I don't know, I, I figured you'd say that, but you didn't. I was like, no. oh, that's, that's, <laughs> Sam, I thought Sam would go for that. But yeah, it, it reminded me of that, you know, the whole dun, dun, yeah, dun, yeah, dun, yeah, dun, yeah. that kind of thing. But yeah, Craig Finn's vocals. I've got to be really honest with you on this one, um, because you've you've come really far really quickly with the whole study in terms of you know in terms of kind of getting to know them i mean it took me like seven or eight years i've got to admit this now right i'll be honest with you seven or eight years ago when i first heard the whole study craig finn's vocals were the one thing i couldn't get past <laughs> like the music itself has got this awesome vibe to it and you you love the music so much that you really want to get into the whole vocal thing um but the vocals I don't know, especially on Separation Sunday, they're almost barked at you. You listen to the first record and there's a bit more of of an indie rock style. This one, he's really going for it and yelling stuff at Mm. you. And the next one, which is Boys and Girls in America, which was kind of their big takeoff, he's he's kind of singing a bit more. Yeah, I noticed that too, yeah. And and that's a good thing, but it's kind of weird when when you kind of... When you kind of fall in love with this record in particular and it gets under your skin, you want more of that style. So when you start singing, it takes a while to get used to that. And you think to yourself, well, why am I having to get used to someone singing when, you know... You want to hear, you want to hear his drunken, vo- drunken speaking vocals instead. And that's why they say this is a bar band, because yeah. you've got a bunch of guys playing classic rock, essentially. You know, just these riffs that, you know, could be Thin Lizzy, could be Boston, whatever. Um, and you've got a guy just reeling off these tales of, of random things going on in the city. But I persevered, and eventually I came to the realization that once you get behind these stories that he's telling, and it's kind of like what you were saying, you, you know, you're sweeping up at work, and you start hearing random lines popping out, 
Because you've heard it yeah. a few times, and you're like, I've given this a chance, and maybe I didn't like that song, but then you hear him say something, and it stands out to you, and you're like, oh, okay, cool, I, I like mm. that. And I, d- I don't know why. They just become anthemic. And then it's almost like you listen to a preacher delivering a sermon or something. It's, it's, it's weird. But to me, and I know it's a massive overstatement, but I, I, I personally feel like he's one of the best lyricists of the, of the kind of modern era because he puts so much out there. It's, and, and because it, it's just so weird that he manages to put so many words out there and so many of them come across as iconic and so many of, of them come across so, you know, powerful. It's, it's, it's nuts. So... Yeah, I, I commend you for kind of getting to know Craig Finn's vocals in like four mm. weeks when it took me seven or eight years. Do you know what? Do you know what I think it is that makes it sound like he's maybe had a few drinks? Go on. He's, he does it a lot, and he does it in a lot of these songs as well. Before he starts a line, and it, quite often as well, there's a she said in it as well, or a he said, or a yep. she said. He'll always say yeah before it. So yeah, that's pretty cool. It, I think yeah. it's like the yeah she said, and then you know it's that part that makes it sound more drunk. It's weird. It's cool, man, and and I think he's intentionally done that because it's the style he's going for, right? He's trying to tell you about something. He he himself, and maybe not like maybe it's kind of more fictional, but he himself is acting as the narrator. Mm. So he's telling you the story, and he often uses stuff like I and he yeah. and she. So you're getting told this story, and you're not sure what angle it's no, coming no, from no. sometimes. Yeah. Like, was he there? Um, is he? Has he just heard about this through word of mouth? And I don't know. That's why it makes it this record so unique, yeah. because it's it's conversational. Yeah. Um, so next up, you've got the song uh, Little Hood Rat Friend. And again, I think we're told about large dr- amounts of drug use um, and loads of like religious influences, confessions, and talk of Jesus rising again, which is a reference to a tattoo that Holly has at the bottom of her back. And what does it say, man? Uh, damn right, he'll rise again. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this track talks about the contrast between like pain and joy. Um, the the talk about the the tattoo being you know scratched into the bottom of her back, um, and things like guitar strings. Uh, you know, been used to for causing pain. Um, yep. Now, this girl that we're singing about loves both, and this track, you know, like I said, really does sort of bring across the contrast between pain and joy, but also how close that can be in some people's lives. Um, yep. I think this track is one of the ones where you'll probably hear the most actual melody from Craig Finn as well with the the chorus. Yeah. Um, so let's have a listen to that. I must ask you, do you think that Craig Finn is singing of 
real life experience or do you think it's all a fantastic fantasy so as you kind of mentioned the story centered around these three central characters holly Charlemagne, and gideon so yeah the album itself acts as a concept record which kind of details their exploits and builds to this conclusion i'd say in the final track but i'm sure we'll talk about that later on so as much as this is fiction the old story that almost all artists work is autobiographical in some way kind of rings true i think because i mean the main clues are there he's got these repeated mentions of Minneapolis and Catholicism. I mean, he grew up around the Minneapolis area. He is a Catholic, so I think that ties it to his real life. I actually read a quote somewhere where Craig Finn said that a lot of the stories come from when he was part of the hardcore scene. He described it as, when I was meeting all kinds of knuckleheads and doing stupid things. So I reckon it's 50-50, really. I think it's draws from his own experiences, Mm. people he's known. You know, everyone tells tall stories. Everyone kind of, you know, gets drunk and says, yeah, I used to know this guy or I used to know this girl and they used to do this and that yeah. and whatever and I feel like he's drawing on some of those stories and kind of just filtering it down and it's coming out in this this whole concept record mm. so yeah I, I, I think 50-50 really 50-50 I think that's a good way of looking at it and I think I probably agree with you okay. um, you move on to the song uh, Charlemagne in Sweatpants now the first time I heard this song um, this was probably my least favourite on the album and there's 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 uh, you know the song is called Charlemagne in sweatpants, but the main lyric is Charlemagne's got something in his sweatpants. Yep, and it just makes you think about all sorts of things. You know, it makes you think about okay, maybe he's got a gun, or maybe it's something else, maybe an unmentionable thing that we shouldn't speak about. <laughs> um, it was that one that I thought of immediately, uh, and it's a song about a pimp. Who you know he pretty much owns Holly, he pretty much owns this girl, and he seems to be the one that helped uh, towards her spiral out of control. Um, but I think she's kind of seen this guy as you know a Jesus figure, you know, sort of a godlike figure, um, and sort of latched onto him, and she will do anything that this guy wants. Um, and it speaks about how he's sort of. Maybe a bit of a ditzy character, but can sometimes get quite nasty. So, yeah, that was that one, really. Again, this is one of those ones I've sort of had to look up in the end because it's sort of, I don't know, the the, the musical style of this one kind of makes it more like this should be a funny song. Um, and it's it's not. and it, but it But it is as well. It's like a character narrative, yeah. isn't it? And it's got easily one of my favorite like set of lyrics in the whole the whole of the album really um i don't know if you you pick this one out but he, he goes on to say do you want me to tell it like it's boy meets girl and the rest is history or do you want me to tell it like it's a murder yeah, mystery yeah, yeah i'm gonna tell it like it's a comeback story that one right i didn't particularly like this song at first but the more i latched onto that set of lyrics i was like yeah okay mm. cool i know this song now. yeah this this is another one of those songs that really matches with something off the dig lazarus dig album as well with the, yeah. the musical style especially um, I agree. You then move on to the song Stevie Nicks, which is an, an excellent piece. And there's uh, a beautiful piece of piano playing from Franz Nikolai. And it perfectly comes in after the mention of, you know, a body being discovered. And I think it changes the mood of the song entirely. You know, though some, some of those bass notes are uh, they're, uh, extremely clever songwriting from all involved. Um, and I think perhaps this was the turning point for the girl. I think this is where she sort of realizes that things have gone too far. Um, and there's speak in this song of being born again 
Um, and I, 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 I think sort of perhaps hearing of the body helped hit home and help with the realization that things need to change and getting high was only causing a low. Um, do you think the keyboard work of Franz Nikolai helps to cement the mood of these songs? Oh, yeah, man. I mean, if you listen to their debut album, Almost Killed Me, and then this, there's this, just this noticeable kind of atmospheric difference, and it's all due to Franz, really. I mean, that first record's great. It's, it's, it, it's still as wordy. It's got anthemic songs on it, but it doesn't quite have that atmosphere that he brings. And I think you hear it on songs like Crucifixion Cruise, which has just got a, like a simple organ part all the way through, but in comparison to previous albums, it's brand new territory for him. Um, so, speaking of Stevie Nicks, the, the song, the band actually mentioned that they, uh, they'd they said to Franz Nicol- Nicolai um, they wanted something similar to the ending of Layla by Eric Clapton. And uh, thanks to Franz, halfway through, and as you mentioned, there's this beautiful piano piece that comes in and kind of builds this song to to its crescendo and to its finale. And, you know, they couldn't have done that without Franz, really. I mean, it wouldn't have sounded as delicate and kind of, you know... As you mentioned, it, it fits the narrative of the song. It fits the, the, the kind of the lyrical content. And I just think he gives the band a boost. I mean, they are essentially a classic rock band. And when you think classic rock band, you think Deep Purple, you know, that kind of thing. You think keyboards and guitars and all that kind of thing. And he gives them that. He really does. And he, he does it even more so on the next record, Boys and Girls in America. But here where he kind of just brings in his style and he's just, like, introducing himself. I feel like Stevie Nicks is the perfect place for you to realise he's the guy that's filling out their sound now. So, yeah, I think he, he is he is that piece of the puzzle that was missing all along and you really hear it on the later records where he's not there. So, yeah, totally, man. So you mentioned the song there, Crucifixion Cruise, and this is where we first find out the name of the person Craig Finn has been singing about all along. And it is... Hallelujah. Uh, it really is. And this is the moment where, you know, we can scream hallelujah because this is the moment where Holly realizes the errors of her ways and it's time to change things. It's an extremely hard-hitting song. Um, and we learn about Holly just being an ordinary girl who got mixed up with the wrong people um, until she saw the light and created her own version of a resurrection. Yeah, I believe the lyric on this one is uh, Hallelujah came to in the confession booth. So that's the whole Catholicism thing been brought in there. And, you know, she's obviously gone there to kind of confess the sins that have have given her this horrible, you know, way of living. And and, and she she knows she's got to do something about it. So, yeah. And we finish up with the song How a Resurrection Really Feels. Um, and I think this is a really fitting end to, you know, quite a brilliant story and a, and a, and a brilliant concept album. And I think if if I'm reading it right, I'd say it's a happy ending where Holly realizes the wrong path she was heading down and sort of went back to her roots, uh, her religious roots, to find the answers to being born again and being resurrected. Uh, you know, the song speaks of her being in the church and, asking if she can tell the congregation how a resurrection really feels. I have got some other stuff to talk about this, but let's listen to a clip.
invited at these parties And these parties, they start lovely But they get druggy and they get ugly and they get bloody The priest just kind of laughed The deacon cut a draft She crashed into the Easter Mass With her hair done up in broken glass She was limping left on broken heels And she said, Father, can I tell your congregation How a resurrection really feels? So yeah, I picked up a really great take on this song from variousmallflames.co.uk and it was by a writer called John Doyle. He says, How a resurrection really feels tells of Holly crashing from the confession booth into Eastern Mass. She stands among the pews in her dishevelled state and says, Father, can I tell your congregation how a resurrection really feels? The track is a culmination of all that Separation Sunday stands for. Regret and joy swirl around the church as Hallelujah confesses her adventures and troubles and finally earns her full name. Um, after reading this, I sat there, sat there sort of like nodding and saying, yep, yep, this guy is absolutely hit it on the head. He's summed up this song and the album perfectly. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on this summary? It's uh, this is another kind of fiction style moment. Where as you're speaking about this, about this, I'm getting goosebumps because this record. It, I mean, I don't relate to it at all, but it's a really special record to me, and I follow the story and I really feel it. And, and to me, and I don't know every detail of the record, and you've done a damn good job of summing it up, dude. But to me, this feels like the big reveal, and it feels like the ultimate conclusion. Really, we we heard Craig talk about his little hood rat friend earlier in the record, yeah. and in this song, we hear him uncovering the fact that Holly was the hood rat, and now we finally know that. Um, and then she enters the church, as you said, and and she wants to tell the congregation how her resurrection really feels. Um, and there's also that great line: "She's been disappearing for years. Today, she finally came back." It's just full of these iconic lines, and and um. It, I guess, as you mentioned, it's insinuating that after all of the events of the album, she's on her way back to the right side of the tracks again, which basically brings everything full circle, as all great stories manage to do. So the whole vibe of the song is just really great. I mean, I look from that guitar riff, which there's there's a video of, of him playing it somewhere live, and it's only in a small venue, but it's great. Just the way that they... Because at the end, they're kind of saying, welcome back, out there." like in a gospel kind of way and, and when the crowd's singing that along I mean a whole steady gig it's it's fantastic and you know you can really feel a change taking place on this song uh, aside from the fact as I mentioned it's one of the cool, coolest riffs on the record so I love it man this song is is you know if you take that journey through the record this song pays it all off and it's a worthwhile ending yeah. so totally yeah. man and it's not a long journey and it's an enjoyable journey as well it's not like you can be asked to listen to a concept album that's, you know, two and a half years long. This is it's quite a short record and you can get you get all this information in a, you know, a short space of time and it it's really great. And it's one of those albums where you know, every time you listen to it, and I've, I'm continuing to listen to it now. Like I'm not, I haven't just listened to this for this podcast. I'm still doing it and still picking parts out. Every single time you listen to it, you do hear something new, and 
you hear little bits and you think, oh, didn't hear that before, didn't hear that before. And you bring more things together. And, you know, I don't know how many times I'll listen to it before it all, until I've heard everything. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know how you feel about that. I don't know whether you've heard everything now or whether you're still hearing new stuff. I really love the the whole steady um, as a kind of a band with a whole catalogue. So I try to vary it up. But this is the record I come back to. Boys and Girls in America is amazing. It's uh, the catchiest by far of all of them. But this record is just different. It's very different. It's just, there's there's something about it that once you immerse yourself in it, and I've really got to applaud you for kind of getting invested in this one, dude. Because it's not only is it a tricky style to get into if you haven't heard it before, but it's got this story that took Craig Finn years to kind of via putting post-it notes up on his wall and pieces of strings attached to him to get this story out. So the fact that you've immersed yourself in it in a mm. few weeks and kind of come out with this story, it's fantastic. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm still finding things yeah. all the time. It's, there's, there's... it's quite funny how you say that about the uh, post-it notes and stuff like that because um, I was thinking, like, you know, on one of the many times I've listened to this, I was just thinking, how do you sit back and write an album like this? Like, I, I often think that this is just not something that could ever come out of my brain. So I think it's yeah, like, I, I a special type of person to uh, create something like this. You know, it's really funny. Um, the whole city is such a unique band that um, it's it's strange. I've sat down and played my guitar a few times, you know, come up with a few riffs that sound like them, but then there's nowhere to go after yeah. that because I'm not Craig Finn. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, this guy's got a singular talent. You can hear it in his solo work and in his own yeah. work. Um, and that the band, that you've got to applaud this band for being able to provide this perfect backing that say you'd had a normal singer singing over the top of it, it'd be incredibly cheesy. It'd, be, it'd sound like a tribute band in a pub, but they nail it so hard, they're so tight, the riffs are so cool, and his style is mm. so great that, you know, there's, there's certain bands where things just come together, and it's almost miraculous, and you wonder, how did you guys even come together and meet? Because it's all so perfect. <laughs> but yeah. it's crazy. There's, there's, I'm sure there's bands that you listen to that you feel exactly the same about, but in this case, I, I, you know, it, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. It's inarguable yeah. to me. <laughs> um, now, I'm not going to claim to be the greatest at picking albums apart and discovering meanings. Um, like I mentioned before, the first time I listened through this record, I had no idea of the true content here and the meaning of the story of it all and, you know, the concept, etc. Uh, it wasn't until like the second or third listen that I began to notice uh, repetitions of things in different songs, you know, uh, references fr from song to song to song with the same thing. Sure. Uh, strong references to being high and uh, major use of the term hood rat. Yep. You know, that's when I decided to really investigate. And boy, I'm glad I did. And I do feel without the knowledge of what this album really is, you could easily fall into thinking it's just another run-of-the-mill basic rock record. Um, yep. Do you think you'd feel the same way about this record if you didn't know the, you know, know what it was about or, and if it was just a collection of basic rock songs? I don't think I would, you know. I think there's a... Um, I look sometimes for, like, lyrical depth... Um, because I like to be able to sink my teeth into things that I know that I can come back to and I'm not going to get bored of. So I feel like everything complements itself so much on this record that it's hard to kind of imagine it without the links and all the things that run through this record. But I don't think I'd enjoy it half as much if it was just this um, 
random collection of songs, yeah. man. I really don't. I think that it's what gives it the the uniqueness. Mm. It's what makes this record. Um, it creates a sense of intrigue. You want to know what's going to happen. If you invest yourself anywhere, you want to know what's going to happen next and you you want to kind of get involved with these people's lives. Mm. So, yeah, I, 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 I honestly don't think I would love it as much if there wasn't the con- conceptual link. I completely agree with you. I mean, uh, musically, I, I didn't love this album at first. I'll admit that. Um, but I, I strongly feel that actually hearing the lyrics brings out the strength in the music, um, you know, that previously wasn't there. It, it turns this basic rock into something more. Um, and if there, were, if there was a way to remove Craig Finn's vocal part from the record and listen again, I think you'd definitely take Franz Nikolai's piano and keyboard parts as a very, very strong point. But again, they're, they're just nothing without the lyrics. And this this is something completely different for me. And I'm, like I say, I'm really glad you've given this to me because I'm not a person who looks at lyrics first. I'm a person who looks at music first. Uh, so this has taken me down a completely different path. Um, I think to sum up, this has got to go on the list of all-time greats, in my opinion, all-time Sam Whaley greats. Uh, it's got it all. It's got catchy rock tunes, you know, after a few plays. Uh, it's got a story that has you hooked and an incredibly unique style that after you familiarise yourself with the album, you'd be able to say, that's the whole study, you know, whenever you hear more of their work. Uh, we spoke on a previous episode about how you would define a classic. Uh, this one has many of the components needed to reach this standard, but would you describe this album as a modern classic? Well, I'm extremely biased because this record's had time to sink its kind of claws in, really. Um, I think it's a really special record and because I'd never heard anything like it before. Um, obviously, you mentioned that we spoke about the nature of so-called classic albums, and as much as I can say it's a classic, it all depends on kind of the legacy, doesn't it? So the record was really well-received by critics and fans, I mean, in terms of, like, underground hype and stuff like that, but... Its influence is like one of those things where you think, who have this band influenced? Because they're so unique. Like, where do I hear this? And you mentioned stuff like Dig Lazarus Dig. And obviously, people like Frank Turner have come forward and said, The Hold Steady are one of my favorite bands. And then you listen to Frank Turner and you're like, okay, so his style, maybe a bit more melodic, maybe a bit more folk-based, but yeah, there's elements in there. So I definitely think that this record and the Hold Steady's catalog have been influential, so... I'm going to go ahead and say yes. In terms of indie rock, if we're just going to say it's a modern classic in the genre of like rock or indie rock, hell yeah, man, definitely. It's it's a favorite of mine, and you you kind of you can go back to it time and time again. You're never going to get bored. There's there's only so many albums you can feel that way about, and I will never get bored of hearing that that a cappella opening line man it's it used to irritate the hell out of me at first but now i know what's coming now i now i hear those panned vocals and i know that riff's coming that riff's like one of those things when I, maybe i'm walking around and i'm feeling a bit anxious or something i'll put that that riff on and it really it's powerful mm. it makes me feel like rocking and it's just so good it makes you feel great it, um and if a record can do that then it's, it's got to be a classic in my mind yeah, certainly I, i'd agree with everything you say there and i think it this is one of those records that proves that it doesn't have to be, you know, a mainstream chart success to become a classic. Um, I think you make a, cl- you make your own opinions of what classics are, and it doesn't have to go into a, 
a record book or have sold so many copies or blah, 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 blah. It's what you believe to be a, a classic. Um, you know, I, I 100% agree with that. But on a side note, this is in Rolling Stone's top 500 albums of all time. Good. So, so not only do we think it's classic, but you know, but one of the biggest mediums in in rock journalism thinks so too. So, so good for them. Yeah. Good for yeah. them. I re- I really enjoyed it. So I must thank you. Excellent, excellent, dude. Uh, well, I, I was really stoked to hear that because that's, that's an album that's pretty close to my heart. So excellent discussion. Um, so on to our favorite part of the show. As we are returning from a break, we figured that we would theme the next episode around comeback albums because we have made a comeback. It may have been a short period of time, but we, we've made a comeback. So let's find out what we've picked for one another to listen to for the next episode. What do you have for me, Sam? Now for you, after... Seven years of absence, we have Morrissey with You Are The Quarry. Oh, fantastic. Now, that's a record that I definitely remember coming out, but I only heard the singles from it, which sounds like a familiar thing from me, I know, but I'm looking forward to this one, dude. I love Morrissey. Um, For yourself, now this band had a couple of comebacks, uh, the 80s originally, and they are one of the kind of front runners of, of, of pop punk music. However, they came back in the 90s, but then 12 years later, they came back in the 2000s. For you, I have Hypercafium Spazinate by The Descendants. Oh, I, I really wish I'd have jumped in there and guessed because I knew you were going to say that after you said about the two comebacks. Okay, well, that's the one, man. Um, it's, it's, it's a favourite of mine, so I look forward to hearing what you think. Well, that's it for this episode. We really hope you enjoyed the show and please head over and chat with us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter by searching Mystery Record Club Podcast. We're always open to new ideas, requests and generally just good conversations. So be excellent to one another and we will see you next time on the Mystery Record Club.